All right, once again, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12? And if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And again, we find ourselves in chapter 12. And as we enter into chapter 12, at least the end of it, we are now only a couple of days from the cross. Just a couple days, maybe three, before the crucifixion of Christ. And so Jesus now issues a last call. A last call. Time was running out. The day of grace was coming to an end. A decision needed to be made. And so Jesus makes a final impassioned plea to the people of Israel and its leadership to receive him as Messiah and Savior before it was too late. The rest of chapter 12 breaks down like this. The cross is looming, verses 27 to 36. Rebellion is reigning, verses 37 to 41. And judgment is coming, verses 42 to 50. Now we'll just do the first one this week. The cross is looming. And for our first point under that main point, I'm calling it the glorification of the cross. The glorification of the cross, verse 27. But I want you to back up to verse 23 for a second and get a running start on this. So in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Why was the Lord's soul troubled? And the Greek is a very strong word, extremely troubled, like a violent shaking. What was he so troubled about? Well, very simply, the cross was near, where he would be made sin for us. Now, we have to be careful, because when Christians read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where Paul said, For he made him, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Christians read this, and I've had them ask me this in the past, uh, when he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, they think that what happened here is that God the Father made Jesus kind of turn into sin so he could judge sin. That is absolutely incorrect. Jesus Christ is God, the sinless, holy Son of God, and he will never be or could never be made into sin. No, the idea is that he was made a sin offering. That's what the animal sacrifice was in the old covenant. You had to take a perfect animal without spot or blemish, and you had to offer that animal in place of the guilty sinner's punishment. So the animal was taking the punishment of the innocent, taking the punishment of the guilty uh, upon itself, so to speak, dying in that person's place. That's exactly what we see going on here with Jesus. He was not turned into sin, but he became the offering for our sin as the sin of humanity was placed upon him. Guys, the cross was where the wrath of a holy God was poured out on Jesus. It's called penal substitution. That's what the theologians call it, penal punishment, substitute, of course. Another died in our place. There was a substitute. We should have died. 
The soul that sins shall surely die, the Bible says. But God allowed for a substitute. That's what the old covenant was all about. Uh, a substitute uh, what could be um, uh, entered in for you to stand in your place. An animal, uh, the blood of which could only cover your sins. Not you guys, but the sins back then, right? That was temporary. It looked forward to another sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, as Jesus came, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was a sinless, spotless Lamb. He was born without sin, lived a perfect life. And he went to the cross in our place, and his blood not just temporarily covered our sin, kafar, atonement, no, his blood took our sins completely away. Our ledger is marked paid in full through the blood of Christ. But the, wrath, the cross was where the wrath of a holy God was poured out on Jesus so that his grace could then be poured out on us, on all humanity. This is a very important thing. Um, we have to understand something, though. The cross not only meant unbearable pain. Now, we're getting very close to the cross. And you probably all heard sermons about what physically was the suffering of the cross like. It was a torturous way to die. Um, invented by the Iranians, uh, Persians, uh, but perfected by the Romans. And it was so brutal. And it was so torturous. And, and it, it took a long time. Usually uh, criminals, it took two and three days before they died. Excruciating pain every second. Uh, wow, okay? So the cross was not only uh, meant unbearable pain, but it also meant unbelievable shame. The, the unbearable pain we've, we've heard about, not that we could ever really come to terms with how bad it was ourselves, but we've heard about it. Uh, the um, unbelievable shame is something that we don't really hear too much about. You have to understand something. The Romans, when they crucified uh, someone, they wanted to make an example out of that person. So sure, they made it as torturous as possible to strike fear into somebody so that they would never again go against Roman law where they would have to be executed. So uh, unbelievable pain. But then the Romans, what they did was they stripped these criminals naked and they stuck them on these crosses along the main road so that people could walk by, spit, mock, uh, do all kinds of things because that was part of it. They wanted to really, you know, yeah, through the pain, unbearable pain, but also the unbelievable shame of it all. We, we often don't hear that about uh, Jesus' crucifixion, how they stripped our Lord Jesus Christ, the holy God of the universe, who became one of us to die in our place. They stripped him naked and placed him in a place where people could walk by and spit on him, which, which was the Eastern custom when they wanted to deride somebody, they would spit. And so he was covered with spittle. He, he was it just incredible shame that went into it. And we have to kind of wrap our minds around that. But Jesus endured the suffering and humiliation of the cross. Listen, at the whole, those he came to save. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Jesus came because of his great love for sinners. And yet, as he came to these sinners, presenting himself, uh, you know, as their king and messiah and all they rejected him and eventually he was then crucified and uh at, at the hands of those he loved and came to save came to die for but the cross also meant guys separation from the father separation from the father 
We can't comprehend what it's like for God, obviously. The Trinity, made up of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who has always existed, eternal, and always in perfect fellowship and unity with each other. What it would be like for God the Son to be separated from the Father and the Spirit, but the Father, right? As he hung on that cross, why was he separated? Why was fellowship broken? Because the Bible says God is of fairer eyes than to behold evil, to behold sin. When the Son hung on that cross and all the sins of humanity were placed upon him, their Father could not have fellowship with that. Jesus Christ was dying for sins. In that regard, so the Father had to turn his face away and break fellowship with the Son. That's why from the cross, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the only time in eternity, the Father broke fellowship with the Son. Again, something we have no, we have no way to even comprehend how, how bad that was for him to endure. But instead of resisting or refusing to go to the cross in light of all these things, our Lord embraced it and prayed that the Father would be glorified through it. Now, at this point, guys, we need to cross-reference Jesus' statement in John 12, 27, with Hebrews 5, 7. I think it's important enough for us to spend a few minutes doing that. Turn to Hebrews 5, 7. And, and let me read it to you. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Now, the context is the writer to the Hebrews is talking about something that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane with our Lord, which, of course, was the night before he went to the cross. And I think it was Paul who wrote Hebrews. So, but he said in verse 7, Who, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus when he was on the earth physically, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Guys, this is a very powerful and poignant look into Jesus Christ, the man, his humanity. We often focus on his deity, but he was the God-man, right? This is a very powerful look into the humanity of Jesus. And this is talking again about the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus' prayer that night, wasn't that the Father would save him from the cross and its physical suffering. Many people think that's what he was asking to be released from. That's not true. Because here in John 12, 27, Jesus said, For this cause I came into the world. I came into the world, right? Now, I believe the main thing that was heavy on the heart of Jesus Christ that night before the cross, the one thing that terrified him most in his humanity, it was, yes, the horror of being separated from the Father for the only time in eternity when all the sins of humanity were piled upon him and he hung on that cross and died in our place. Of course, that was something he had never experienced in his whole life, would ever experience again, being separated from his Father, broken fellowship. But I kind of believe from what the author of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 7 says, I really believe that the further, another thing, and probably maybe the most pressing thing that he feared was that the father would listen leave him in death the next day he was going to the cross he was going to die for this cause for this reason i came into the world what he feared the most i believe was that the father would leave him in death 
I believe, guys, that is what is being described in Hebrews 5, 7. The thing that he was most terrified of, causing him to continually offer up supplications to his father again in the Garden of Gethsemane with vehement tears of torment and wailing is the idea. So much so that he sweat drops, great drops of blood at one point. When it says in Hebrews 5, 7 that Jesus prayed to his father with vehement cries and tears to him who who was able to save him from death. The Greek is not to save him from death, or in other words, to save him from dying on the cross. No. The prayer was that the Father would save him out of death. Out of death. In other words, that the Father would not leave his soul in Sheol, nor his body in the grave to decay. Turn to Psalm 16. And I'm sure this is not new for most of you, but important for us to touch on it since we're here in John 12. I I really believe this is what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. This is what Jesus feared the most. I I believe Jesus Christ was the strongest and bravest man that has ever lived. And yes, he didn't look forward to enduring the cross, but he wasn't wimping out and saying, Father, I don't want to go through it. Please, please. No, that wasn't it. Something else going on here. And I believe, because, and we would never have known this until we read Hebrews 5. This is what was going on. That Jesus was weeping and wailing, Father, don't leave my, I'm, I've come to die. Don't leave my soul in the grave. Don't allow my body to see corruption. We know that from Psalm 16. Look at verse 9. Jesus is speaking through the psalmist. Therefore, my heart is glad And my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. My body will rest in the grave after I die. Verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The idea is bodily decay is the idea. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that's really what Jesus was praying for in the garden? How do I know he wasn't wimping out and praying, Father, please don't let me go to the cross. I've changed my mind. I I know it because he went through with it, first of all. But because of what comes next in Hebrews 5, where it talks about in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, listen, and was heard because of his godly fear. The writer of the Hebrews states that Jesus' prayer was heard, indicating that Jesus' prayer was answered by the Father. Since he did die on the cross that next day, this could not have been what he was praying about to escape the cross. For if the Father had answered that prayer, well, Jesus would not have been crucified. Very simple. Rather, this prayer was answered When God the Father raised his son from the dead, listen, saving him out of the dead, out of death is the idea, Uh, which, by the way, is all our hope, is all of our hope. You know, the writer of the Hebrews talks about how that for many, many years, people would, uh, were terrified of death. It paralyzed them. Some people can't even enjoy life. They're so afraid of dying. And the idea is when Jesus came, he did say at one point, I'm going to the cross. 
uh, but I'm going to rise again because I live, you will live also, right? And then when he came out of the grave, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he was a first fruits. In other words, because he was raised from the dead never to die again, it guaranteed that a whole bumper crop, a whole harvest of souls would come up out of the grave at one point never to die again. All believers, right? So, so this is the idea that this is our hope. Jesus said this hope, he stated it in Psalm 16, but in his humanity on the night before his crucifixion, he began to become fearful. And, uh, and Father comforted him, of course, sent angels to do that at one point, we know, in the garden there as he was sweating drops of blood. The angels came, comforted him. No doubt with the reassurance the Father has sent us to tell you, he has told you he won't leave your soul in hell. You know you can trust the word of the Father. And of course he knew that. We know the word of God. Sometimes we get confronted with situations where we become paralyzed with fear. We, we know what the word says. And we do believe God, but we're weak, right? Our flesh is weak. And, and so Jesus in his humanity had a, his moments of weakness. Not that he ever sinned. I'm not saying he had moments of weakness where he was tempted by sin. No, just had moments where he, you know, he was having a hard time just really coming to terms with, all right, I've never tasted death. Uh, the Father's promised me he's not going to leave me in the grave. I have to, I have to hold on to that. And, and, and eventually, of course, he did that. But that's our hope as well. You know, we're not paralyzed by the fear of death anymore as Christians. We might worry about how we're going to die, right? But we don't worry about dying because we know it's the ultimate release. It's the ultimate victory. Conquering death, that's the ultimate victory, right? And, and so on. But of course, when Jesus talked about his death here in John 12, he was talking about his literal death. Earlier, when he told his disciples, you've got to die, take up your cross and follow after me, he was talking about symbolically, although some of them did die by crucifixion, Peter, and there were others. But the idea is that when he commands us, look, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up, die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's, that's you know, allegorical. That's, you know, not literal. But we have to die for the Lord every day by just submitting to his will. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. Some, and for some, that may lead to physical death, martyrdom. I don't know how it's going to wind up being, even in our country as time progresses. We don't know what's coming. Many a very godly man or woman who believed in Jesus was martyred for their faith. We're not necessarily exempt. But, but if we don't die literally as a martyr for Christ, we need to die every day to our desires, to our goals, to our will and so on, that we might walk in submission to his will, his goals for our lives to bring him the most glory. Very important, right? The Bible says that Jesus, verse 26, back in John 12, Jesus said, and we looked at this last time, but Jesus said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Well, where was he going? To the cross. It was only a couple days away. That's what he's really saying. He's saying, look, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to follow me to the cross because that's where I'm going to be in a couple days, right? And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him the Father will honor. Look, the Bible says that Jesus was our example, an example of the life that glorifies God, which means that we also must go to the cross. 
if we want to live a life that God will honor, a life that will glorify God. Of course, Jesus didn't look forward to the cross. You don't have to turn there, but back in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, what, the cross? No, no, no. He endured the cross. The joy that was set before him was beyond the cross, dying for our sins, rising again the third day, which allowed God to extend an invitation to the whole world to come to Jesus Christ to be saved. Talk about that more in a second. But Jesus didn't enjoy the... He says, you know, for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. He endured it to gain the joy that would follow. What would be the joy that would follow? Well, again, to glorify his Father by gathering out of humanity a community of redeemed people who would be true worshipers, check out John 4, who would forever worship God in spirit and in truth. You know who these people would be? The bride of Christ. So the joy for Jesus was by going to the cross and dying for humanity, those that would respond to him would become his church, his bride, who would reign with him for all eternity. Look, no one enjoys dying. But for the Christian, it's necessary if we're going to glorify God, glorify God and receive honor from him someday. That's all that Jesus wanted. If you read the gospel carefully, there's only one thing, thing Jesus really wanted to do, and that was to bring glory to his Father. Which begs the question, how about you and me? How about us? What is our consuming passion as Christians? Think about it. What is our consuming passion as Christians? Can we really say and mean it with all of our heart? I only want one thing on, in this, on this earth with my life to do, to bring glory to God. Now, that's the right answer. That's how Jesus lived. That was his consuming passion. But we can mouth the words and not mean it in our heart. I mean, this is important. This should be our supreme goal as Christians. To glorify God. Now, the question is, how is God glorified? Now, you get a lot of different answers from different people. I'm going to give you the simple one, which I believe is the correct one. How do we bring glory to God? Listen, by displaying his attributes to this world. What is that? His love, mercy, grace, holiness, etc. All that God is, he wants us to demonstrate to the people of this world. We don't always do it like we should. That should be our goal. That was Jesus' passion, right? That's how, what he lived for. Well, how do I do that exactly? Well, you get close to God because it's a supernatural way to live. You draw close to God every day. Um, you constantly cry out to God to send his spirit up, upon you to fill you fresh, that you can live by his grace for him in this world, which means you don't retaliate when you're wronged. You, you, don't, you don't do the things your flesh wants you to do, Right? I mean, how do we glorify God by demonstrating what he's like to this world? And so we have to bring ourselves to God every day as living sacrifices. And we have to say to ourselves, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, what I do, um, what I say, how I think, 
These are all ways I'm going to either glorify God or dishonor God. So whatever you're contemplating on doing, is this going to glorify God if I do this? Whatever you're contemplating saying, and that means passing along that juicy little piece of gossip as a prayer request, is that going to glorify God? Is that going to build this kingdom? Is that going to honor him? Even what you think. Our minds are the great battlefield of the Christian life. Satan can control our thinking. He can control our living. God knows that. That's why the Bible says once you get saved, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to get in the Word. you got to get brainwashed. Satan has dirtied up our minds for all the years before we got saved. You've got to wash our minds, our thinking. How do you do that? By staying in the Word. So God, if I think this, am I going to honor you? If, if I, if I you know, accept that gossip and, 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 and judge this, am I going to honor you by the way I, I think of them now? But what I do, what I say... These are things that we, Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Again, what you think, what you say, what you do. All of this has to be evaluated, I think, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. It's exhausting, you say. Well, the more you do it, the easier it gets because God's going to give you more and more grace. And so finally, I think it's just reflexive. You just do it out of, you know, it's just like, it's just part of you. You don't even have to think about it. So the first point under this main point, the glorification of the cross, these others will move faster, okay? Number two, the, aff the affirmation of the Father. So the glorification of the cross, verse 27. The affirmation of the Father, verse 28, starting off, where it says, Jesus, Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. When the Father spoke from heaven that Jesus had glorified him already, he was talking about the life that he had lived, the Son. The life that he had lived on the earth had already brought glory to God. The Father, by saying this, that you've already glorified me once, you're going to glorify me again, was the Father's way of affirming the man that Jesus was in fact his son and the mission that he had been sent down to the earth by the Father to represent him and to die for the sins of humanity, which is the second way he was going to glorify the Father by his death and resurrection. How would that glorify the Father? Well, the idea is that, again, when Jesus died on the cross and rose the third day, this would allow people to be saved. And that meant that the Father, through the Holy Spirit, could begin to draw people from all over the world. Verse 32, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That was made possible by the cross in Jesus' death for sins. And once God began to draw, I believe the whole world is, is called. Few are chosen because few respond to the call. But the invitation goes, has gone out to the whole world. Anyone can come. Anyone can come and receive Christ, have their sins forgiven, be part of the family of God. In fact, guys, this, this was God's, the Father's affirmation. This was the third time the Father spoke from heaven. Do you realize this in the Gospels? First time when Jesus was baptized, second on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now here in John 12. All three times the Father spoke audibly, okay? The first two times he actually said, this is my beloved son, affirming that Jesus Christ 
was in fact his son. He, Jesus went around saying that to everybody he ministered to. Many rejected it because they didn't accept who he was. Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. But the father gave testimony. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At one point he said, listen to him. Listen to him. He's speaking on my behalf. Listen to what he has to say and adjust your life accordingly was the idea, right? But the father is saying he was glorified first through the son's life, through the flawless way Jesus represented the father to the people of this earth. And guys, that would include the miracles he did and all the words he spoke. But the father is going to be glorified again, the father said through Jesus' death and resurrection, which would bring many sons and daughters to glory, many people to salvation. You can read Hebrews 2 verse 10. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was the first fruits that guaranteed a bumper crop would rise from the dead someday of all those who had put their faith in him. One author had this to say. Let me quote it to you. He said, Jesus willingly expressed his submission to the will of the Father in the words, Father, glorify your name. So also believers in difficulty should stand and embrace his will, desiring that his name be glorified in spite of conflicting emotions. Jesus' supreme desire was the glory of God. What a lesson this is for us. We tend to whimper and cry and complain and ask God why he lets unpleasant things happen to us. Uh, with Christ, we should learn to say, Father, through this suffering and through this pain, glorify yourself, end quote. Well, that's going to take a very dynamic, spirit-filled, dead-to-self Christian to, to live that life. Now, it used to be more the norm than the exception. Today, it's more the exception than the rule. Because for the last 50, 60 years, the church has been fed a steady diet of man-centered theology, where it's all about us. You know, what God's going to do for me, and how God's going to bless me. Uh, and churches to accommodate this because they want to have big churches and not chase people out. Uh, in fulfillment of what Paul said in the last days, many in the church would not want to hear sound doctrine because they have itching ears that would gather to themselves Teachers who would tell them whatever their, their itching ears want to hear. You're wonderful. You're great. You don't have to change. Uh, you know, and, and, and God loves you, and God just wants to bless you, and so on and so forth. Well, you, you, you feed on that for years, and you get a very uh, shallow, sickly church. Not a robust, strong body of believers, right? This is the thing. And, 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 and so, you know, I would love to say that in these last days, we're getting stronger as a church, whereby we could face suffering and trials and adversity with, God, I don't care what it is, bring it on, Father. If it's going to bring you glory, then I'm all for it. Just give me the grace to endure. But today, it's like, my goodness, a person gets a hangnail in the church, or they're devastated. Oh, my goodness. Holy Moses. It's like, you know, oh, God, let me get a hangnail. Like, suck it up, buttercup. Come on. <laughs> Good Lord, we're facing the last, Jesus is coming back. The world's ramping up its hatred towards Christianity. You're worried about this little insignificant thing? All right, we'll move on. So we have the glorification of the cross, verse 27. The affirmation of the Father, verse 28. And then the confusion of the crowd, which shouldn't surprise us. The crowd is mostly confused because they're clueless for the most part. Uh, but some get saved, so we thank God for that. But verse 29. Therefore, the people who stood by heard it. The Father had just spoken from heaven. Heard it and said that it had thundered. Some said, oh, it's going to rain. It's thundering. 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, this confusion of the crowd is also expressed in verse 34, so we'll get to that in a second. But apparently now, guys, apparently everybody heard rumblings. They heard a noise or some noises, but only, the, only Jesus' true disciples who had an open heart, a willing heart to know what God wanted to say to them and wanted to live that way, only they heard the exact words the Father spoke. And it was by design because it was God's way of encouraging those who were Jesus' true disciples because what was coming in a couple of days was going to rock their world. Going to rock their world. Their Messiah, their King, was about to be brutalized and, and killed. And they needed to know that God the Father was in it. It was all in the plan of God. Don't panic. Jesus said, look, the Father's going to glorify me, glorify himself again through my death and resurrection. Remember I told you this. Remember he three times, I think he told them he was going to die on, on the cross. And the third day rise again. But you know when you hear news you just can't come to terms with? You hear that first part, you know, that you, you, you go, something's not right, go to the doctor, and he or she takes a bunch of tests. They, come, they sit you in for that dreaded consultation, and, they, and, and, and the first words out of the doctor's mouth, you have cancer. Click. Your brain turns off. I got cancer. Click. And, but it's curable. I didn't hear that part. I got cancer. I'm done. Jesus told his disciples three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be crucified. Click. They didn't hear, and then on the third day, rise again, right? So the morning of the resurrection, they were all taken by surprise. They were clueless, and they were saved, but they were clueless, right? But others that were standing there that were not real disciples, I mean, there's a lot of folks that followed Jesus, and especially this last week, as some of them hated him so much, they just were hanging around him all the time to find something they could accuse him with, Right? But others who were there had no capacity to understand the voice of God. That doesn't mean they didn't hear something. Some said it was thunder. Others said, no, no, it can't be thunder. Uh, it sounded more like an angel talked to him. I like what one pastor said. He said, and I quote, Some of those standing by mistook the voice of God for thunder. Such people are always trying to put a natural explanation on spiritual things. Men who are, who are unwilling to accept the fact of miracles try to explain the miracles away by some natural law or phenomenon. Others knew it was not thunder, and yet they did not recognize it was the voice of God either. Realizing it must have been superhuman, they could only conclude that it was the voice of an angel. God's voice can only be heard and understood by those who are helped by the Holy Spirit to understand. Is the idea? People can listen to the gospel over and over and over again, and yet it might be ever so meaningless to them unless the Holy Spirit speaks to them through it, end quote. Well, how does that happen? I mean, if I can only understand the word of God, if God allows me to, well, what will determine if he allows me to? Where's your heart at? Do you want to hear God's word? Do you want to know what God really has to say to you? Or you pick on a church that's only going to tell you what you want to hear because you don't really want to hear what God has to say to you. Because it might step on your toes. It might be un unpleasant to hear. 
That might require you make some changes you're not really willing to make at this point. So a lot of people who come to church really don't want to hear what God has to say. But if your heart is open and you want to hear the voice of God speaking to you, the first place to start is the Word of God, of course, but even then God will speak to you in your heart if you're open to hearing God's voice, right? Remember the closer we got, got to the cross, okay? In Matthew 13, up until that point, Jesus had been teaching very openly, straightforwardly, and simply. All of a sudden, one day, he starts teaching in parables. You can check out Matthew 13, right? This was such a departure from his normal style of teaching, it puzzled the apostles, and so that evening they asked him, well, Lord, why are you talking to them in parables? This veiled sayings, riddles. He says, because it's been given to you, my disciples who have an open heart, to understand the things of the, of the Spirit of God, but to them it's not been given. Because they don't really want to hear. You know, they, they, their ears are dull, their hearts are hard. They, they don't really, they, they follow me, but they don't really want to hear what I have to say. They're, excuse me. Therefore, I'm only going to speak in parables so that only those who have a good heart and open heart, the Spirit of God will speak to them through the, they will know the truth. And the rest of it will be hidden from them. Hidden. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 9. After he gave a parable, he said, Let him, her, who uh, has ears, let them hear. Ears to hear. Ears to hear. Those that want to know God's truth, listen to what I'm saying. It's important that you take this to heart. All right, so we see the glorification of the cross the affirmation of the Father, the confusion of the crowd, and finally this morning, the exhortation of the Savior, starting in verse 31. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world has been cast out. Guys, at the cross, God not only judged sin, as we talked about, by placing it upon Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. Again, check out Isaiah 53, verse 6. Uh, he bore our sins Father laid upon him the sins of us all, Isaiah 53, verse 6. So at the cross, God not only judged sin, but he also judged the world. The Greek word is a word that implies this fallen world system controlled by the devil. On Calvary, the whole fallen world system was judged. The sin, the corruption, the rebellion, all of it, all of it was judged. The verdict came at Calvary, guilty. If the human race was not guilty, Jesus would not have died. The fact that Jesus had to die in, implied very clearly that the human race was guilty. So the verdict came at Calvary. But the sentence won't be carried out until a future time is recorded in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 chronicle. A future time when judgment will be poured out on this Christ-rejecting, rebellious satanic world system and you don't have to look very far just look at the news in, in the evening to see how bad the system it really is there is unrest and lawlessness everywhere and if you have the right political views you're given a pass if you don't have the right political views no matter what you do you're going to be held accountable this is the world we're living in it's a corrupt, fallen world. It's always been that way. It's getting worse because the Bible says the closer we get to Jesus' return, evil men will grow what? Better and better? Worse and worse. Yikes. 
How much worse can it get? Worse, okay? But in Revelation 6 through 19, God is basically now bringing upon the world the sentence for their sins. And uh, he is going to be pouring his wrath, his judgment out in this Christ-rejecting, rebellious, satanic world system. And everyone on this planet that clings to this evil system, what Revelation calls 11 times in that book, the earth dwellers. Who are the earth dwellers? These are people that this is their home. They have no thought for heaven. These are the ones where the seed fell in the hard soil in the parable of the sower, and the birds came, plucked up the seeds. They didn't have a chance to, to get into the soil, germinate, and bring forth any fruit. These are the folks we're talking about. They're very hard-hearted. They, you know, this is their home. They don't want to talk about heaven. They don't believe in that. You know, that's for you you religious weirdos, they, they say. This is where I This is my reality. And so not, they're not like us, pilgrims and sojourners, passing through to heaven. This is not our home, right? We're passing through. And, uh, but, but for them, this is their home. And so the Lord is going to judge the earth well. These are the ones, um, right before Jesus returns, come together as the armies of the Antichrist in the Valley of Megiddo with their surface-to-air missiles and their bazookas and whatever else, their howitzers, and they're pointing up at the sky because they know the prophecy that from the time the, that uh, the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, 1260 days later, Jesus is coming. They know the prophecies. They just don't submit to them. So they're all waiting in the Valley of Megiddo to go to war against Jesus when he comes. Of course, and here he comes at one point. And so they let him have it. <laughs> really? And what does he do? The sword that comes out of his mouth, the word, he just speaks it and they're vaporized. And he establishes his kingdom, right? The world is doomed. It's doomed to be judged and destroyed. And at that time, Satan will be cast out of heaven into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then he is going to be resurrected to stand before the Lord and will be eventually cast into hell for all eternity. The world is terminal, but Jesus is going to recreate it. He can make a new heavens and new earth and a new city for us to live in called New Jerusalem. But guys, Jesus is offering individuals. Judgment's coming. He's offering individuals an opportunity to escape coming judgment by receiving him right now. Look at verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus, by going to the cross and dying, that's what he meant when he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, lifted up on the cross and dying, he would draw, or in other words, he would make possible for God to draw all peoples to himself, all the families, all the people groups throughout the world would then be drawn to the Savior by the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago and three days later when he stepped from the tomb alive. John sees a vision of the redeemed gathered around the throne of God in heaven Rejoicing and praising God. Revelation 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to, singing to Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Listen, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God loves the people of this world. 
And salvation is an open invitation to anyone, anyone, to come to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness, to be a member of God's kingdom forever. Jesus made that possible on Calvary's cross when he died for the sins of the whole world, and at which time he said, it is finished. The Greek is to tell us die paid in full, and that payment, his blood, satisfied God's righteousness, all of our accounts, all of our accounts, all the sin, all the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, God at that moment stamped paid in full on our account. If we would come to, and God knew if we would come or not, whether it was at the base of the cross 2,000 years ago or today, people living in our world. He knew everybody who would accept the invitation to come, and he marked their account paid in full to Telestai, is what the Greek means. It is finished, paid in full. Guys, listen, as we wrap it up, it's not always easy to live for Jesus. I know that. You know that. It's not always easy to live for Jesus each day on the earth. Yet I can promise you, I can promise you that no one will ever be sorry they live for Jesus on Judgment Day. Because if they were a believer on the earth and lived for Jesus on the earth, proving they were a believer, on Judgment Day, the judgment of God will pass over them because they have applied the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts of their heart, allowing God's judgment to pass over because our sins are paid for. So nobody who has ever lived for Jesus now, as hard as it is at times, is going to be sorry they lived for him on the day of judgment when the world is being judged and they are being pardoned. But everybody, everybody, and there's, that's most of humanity, who stands before Jesus on that day without apply, having, having applied his blood to their uh, life, well, they're going to be very sorry they didn't live for him on that day of judgment when they have to stand before him, Right? So guys, again, in John 12, this was their last call. And since tomorrow isn't promised to anyone, it could be yours as well. I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know your heart. God does. God knows those who have accepted Christ. God knows those of you who have not. That's why the Bible says examine yourself to see, make sure you're really saved. Don't wait before you stand before him and hear him say, I never knew you. Get right with God now is the idea, right? This is, was their last call. It might be yours. I don't know how much more time you have left on the earth. I know one thing. The writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. If God is speaking to you, if God's tugging on your heart, yeah, you know, I really need to get my life right with God. I went to Awanas. I, I went to Sunday school as a kid. I, I know what I need to do. Jesus is the way. But you know what? Not today. I've got time, right? Well, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, today is the time. Today is the day. You're not gonna, you may not get tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. I'm convinced hell is going to be populated with millions of people who are not flat-out unbelievers, hardened unbelievers. They were people that had gone to church and really believed that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior of the world. But they just figured, I'm going to wait. You know, I'm not done sowing my wild oats. Someday I'll, I'll get right. And they died prematurely, not, 
they, they died right on time, but people always think they have time to wait and make a decision. And I believe hell is going to be populated with people who are going to forever weep and wail and gnash their teeth because they put off what they should have taken care of immediately. Back in John 12, verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, guys, they knew the term Son of Man uh, related, to, uh, related to the Messiah. They knew that. It wasn't that they had never heard the term. They were confused about the application. Well, wait a minute. We've always heard the Son of Man would be the Messiah. And we've always been taught when he comes, he's going to abide forever. How can you be the Son of Man, Jesus? You claim to be the Messiah, but you're talking about going to the cross in a few days. Who is this Son of Man you're talking about? Can't be our Son of Man. Can't be our Messiah. Again, we have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. Guys, the people have been taught only the passages from the law, the Old Testament. Their scriptures, our Old Testament, which spoke of the triumph of Messiah. And how he would come as a king to establish a kingdom upon the earth, a kingdom that would never end, and Messiah would reign over forever. That's what they were taught, all right? That's what their rabbis taught. Because the rabbis, kind of like a lot of pastors today, didn't want to say anything negative, a lot of these guys, because they wanted a big following. You know, the more disciples you had, the more prestige you had. And so, you know, you wanted to, some of these guys loved the praise of men so much that, you know, they kept it very positive uh, and upbeat. They stayed away from all the scriptures that were kind of negative sounding. Consequently, most people didn't even know about these scriptures. All they heard about was when Messiah comes, he's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever and he's going to reign over it forever. Look, I'll read you three real quick. Isaiah 9 verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, talking about Messiah's kingdom, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Daniel 7.14, again talking about the Messiah, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. I'll give you one more, Micah 4, 7. So the Lord will reign over them, Messiah now. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. The people had been taught only the passages from the law which spoke of the triumph of Messiah. They were virtually unaware, they were virtually ignorant of the passages in the word that spoke of his suffering and dying, like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and other places. This crowd who believed that Messiah would come as a political conqueror, that was the main idea most people had back then. You know, he was going to come as a political Messiah. He was going to conquer Rome, establish a kingdom, and so on. That's their concept. Most of these Jewish people was their concept with regard to Messiah. He was going to be a political conqueror. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to consider the possibility that he was going to die. I'm convinced whenever Jesus talked about dying, they clicked, their brains clicked off. 
Or they just flat out reject him. He can't be the Messiah. He's talking about dying. Our Messiah is not going to die. I don't know what son of man you're talking about. I know what our son of man is from Scripture. He's a conquering king, a conquering hero. He's never going to die. He's going to establish a, a kingdom that will last forever. I mean, this didn't fit into their theology, is the idea. <laughs> their theology of who Messiah would be when he came. Again, they believed he'd be a conquering hero, not a dying savior. When he finally arrived on the scene, he was going to be this conqueror. This is the common mistake a lot of Christians make today. They cling only to the scriptures they like and reject all the scriptures they don't like. They never read those. Eventually, they forget they're even in the Bible. This creates a false theology in their mind that contradicts other passages when these things are presented to them. I've had people over the years, as soon as they heard something that conflicted with their, their theology, because everything is nice and neat, they got their own little theological construct and they live in there and it's wonderful and God is a loving God who never allows pain and if you're sick, he's going to heal you. That's your heritage as a child of God and he's going to prosper us. He's going to make us the wealthiest people in town and so on. That's their theology. That's the little bubble they live in. And when they come to a church and hear something contrary, like take up your cross, deny yourself and follow Jesus, uh, I see them walk right out. God forbid you should challenge their theology. But it's based on half-truths, and half-truths are a lie in the sense that if you only read part of God's Word, not that God's Word is a lie, you're not going to get to the right place in your theology, right? That's why we teach verse by verse. A lot of pastors accommodate this by only, again, teaching the positive things, the uplifting passages, and they stay away from all the rest of it. Look, that's why we teach verse by verse here, because that way you're going to get the whole counsel of God. You know? That way I can't mislead you by only sharing with you the positive stuff that makes me seem like I'm the most positive, uplifting pastor in the world. Look, I want to be uplifting. I, I like it when people are happy. It's just that sometimes you got to get sad. What can I tell you? Sometimes God says, look, I'd love to make you happy all the time. I know him. He's not leaving because he's disagreeing. <laughs> Ronald's a good guy. He'll be back. Great timing, though, Ronald. Thank you. We didn't, we didn't plan that. Okay. All right. Let, let, let's finish, okay? You guys are thinking, geez, you're, you're taking an awful long time. Okay. We're, we're, just, we're just about there. Verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. In other words, that was it. He had said everything he was going to say. His ministry publicly had now come to an end. He would spend the next few days building into his disciples what they needed because they were going to be taking over the work of the kingdom soon after Jesus was crucified and ascended back to his father. So that was it. It was done. And he said the last thing he needed to say or wanted to say, and then he, he was hidden. It's up to you now. Ball's in your court, we would say. Whatever you do, want to do with what I've said, you do it. 
Um, I believe I, I want you to embrace the light, walk in the light. But if you choose darkness, I can't, I can't, I can't change that. You, you have a free will. You do what you want now. Again, this was the last call, a final plea for the nation of Israel to respond to the truth of God before it was too late. Well, they didn't respond. They rejected him. And so 38 years later, the judgment fell. The Roman emperor Titus Vespasian and the legions of Rome came against Jerusalem, leveled the city, leveled the temple, didn't leave one stone on top of another. The judgment came because they did not receive the light. They did not embrace it. They did not receive Christ as their Messiah. Jesus illustrated that. He's trying to get through to them. And the Lord illustrated it by using the analogy of a traveler having to reach his destination. Listen, while there was still enough light to see where he was going, right? I mean, in those days, you know, you didn't get to where you needed to go by nightfall. It was pretty dark, unless there was a full moon. And you were left to grope around in darkness trying to find your way. And this is the, the analogy Jesus presented. Of course, he's speaking allegorically. Light equals spiritual truth. Walk means to believe and act upon that truth. Darkness equals absent of spiritual truth and understanding. In other words, the day of God's grace toward Israel was just about over and would be followed by spiritual darkness and destruction. Again, 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And Jesus is pleading with them here, one last time to accept the truth of God while they still had the opportunity to accept it. In other words, the opportunity to believe the message he was giving them, the light, while it was still being proclaimed. Jesus is warning them, that when the day of God's grace and opportunity comes to an end, well, they'll be left to grope in spiritual darkness forever. Forever. One author said, and I'm quoting him, he said, We have met this image of light and darkness before. By a simple step of faith, these people could have passed out of spiritual darkness, darkness and into the light of salvation. This marked the end of our Lord's public ministry as far as John as far as John's record is concerned. Jesus departed and hid himself. It was judgment on the nation that saw his miracles, heard his messages, and scrutinized his ministry, and yet refused to believe on him, end quote. And guys, the warning that Jesus gave to Israel back then applies to this generation today. Look, you only have so much time on this earth. You, Jesus said, look, uh, make use of the day. The night is coming when no one can work, when life is over with, is the idea. Make use of the light that God gives you while you have opportunity to accept the light, receive Christ, and live for Him in whatever time you have left. Because death is coming for all of us. We don't know when it's going to come in each of our lives, but it's coming. We know that. What are we going to do with our lives while we are still have the day, Okay. The night of death is coming, and that's it. This world is about ready to understand that firsthand. This world is about ready to have God carry out the judgment that, you know, the verdict rendered on Calvary, the judgment sentence is now going to be carried out very soon. As soon as the rapture happens and we're out of here, 
God is going to begin to pour out his wrath on this world. Initially, slowly, not as strong judgments, and many will start getting saved. Millions and millions. The number is so big, Revelation 7, John couldn't even count the number of martyrs in heaven. The Holy Spirit will be active. But it's going to be a time when God is judging this world, this world system, in preparation for Jesus coming to establish a new world order where he's going to be king. And we're going to live in a world that will not be polluted with corruption, defilement, crime, uh, so on. A world where he'll be on the throne. He won't allow injustice. He won't allow crime. And we'll live in a world of peace and harmony. The Bible says every man, every woman will be able to sit under their own fig tree and not be afraid uh, because there will be no crime. They'll take their spears and, and uh, their swords and beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks, and they won't study war anymore because there won't be any wars. The Prince of Peace will be reigning. That's coming. Now, to everybody who has not accepted Christ, you don't want to be down here when these things happen. Today is the day of salvation. Receive Christ now, and when the rapture happens, you'll be evacuated and won't have to endure the terrible judgments coming upon planet Earth. Next week, God willing, we will continue, hopefully uh, finish up John 12, and we move then into the last evening. Chapter 13 deals with the last evening of Jesus on the earth before the cross. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for giving us an opportunity, Lord, to escape the wrath to come. We just pray, Lord, that you will, everybody in this room who doesn't know you, that you'll bring them to you. Open their eyes. All of our family members, all the people we love in the earth that don't know you, Lord, get a hold of them, we pray. Touch their hearts. Open their eyes. and Don't give them a moment's rest until they find rest in you. And Father, give us grace to walk in the light, to shine the light, that when people see us, they can see you by the way we live. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.